The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at bit.ly forward slash ARI webinars. What Should Society Do About the Poor? by Aaron Smith. Well, hello everyone, and uh, welcome to Philosophy for Living on Earth, coming to you live from the Ayn Rand Institute. This is a weekly video series exploring some of life's big questions from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. I'm Aaron Smith, uh, your host this week, uh, and our big question today is, what should society do about the poor? I'll give about a 15 to 20 minute presentation and then we'll open it up for questions and discussion. Uh, my colleague and fellow philosopher, Ben Bayer, will be joining me to moderate the Q&A uh, and will probably join in the discussion as well. So let's get started. What should society do about the poor? And what I wanna do here today is to challenge the question itself, because I think the formulation of the question as it's typically posed, what should society do about the poor, uh, is revealing. First of all, I think it's fair to say that most people take it for granted that we have a moral obligation toward the poor or toward those in need more general, generally. Uh, so the usual answer is that something has to be done. That's just obvious. So that's the first part. Second, most people think uh, that issues like poverty and need in general are problems for society as a whole or for the government as its representative to address. And as a result, people usually think of welfare state programs uh, like financial assistance programs, subsidized health care, uh, subsidized education, and so on, uh, as the morally appropriate or even morally mandatory way of addressing these problems. After all, they would argue, I think, that for a society to do anything less would be callous and hard-hearted toward its own members, something unbecoming, of a nation, unbecoming for a nation as advanced and as well-off as our own. So that's the conventional view. Um, but from Ayn Rand's perspective, the conventional view is wrong. And so I want to spend some time explaining why I think Ayn Rand is right and the conventional view is wrong. Um, so let's first look at the philosophic, some of the philosophic assumptions that underlie and generate the conventional perspective, namely altruism and collectivism. Altruism is the view that no one has the moral right to live for his own sake. That what morality demands is service and sacrifice for others as his highest moral duty and virtue. Collectivism is the view that in society, the individual should be subordinate to the group, that the needs and desires of the group supersede those of the individual. So in that sense, collectivism is the social political expression of the morality of altruism. It's this combination of ideas, I think, it's altruism and collectivism that shapes our culture's view of our social existence and of our obligations toward others in society. To make this clear, I mean, to make it clear that this is the popular perspective or this is what's underlying it, um, notice that when people think about so-called social questions, for example, what to do about the poor or the sick or the disabled, people do not typically ask whether anything should be done because altruism has answered that question for them. Of course, something has to be done. If someone is in need, you have a moral obligation to help. Nor do they typically ask, what can I do with my own resources and time? How can I persuade others to do something? Because of the, the, because of the implicit acceptance of collectivism, Many people think of these issues as uh, in social rather than individualistic terms. And so this is the reason why I think the question is often formulated as what should society do about the poor or the old or the sick or whatever. <clears throat> in, other words, <clears throat> in other words, the assumption implicit here is that these are political problems, problems to be decided by the government or by society as a whole. And once they're treated as political problems, people start proposing political solutions and those solutions are, are, are implemented. And, and in the process, individuals 
that it can in a very real sense become invisible to those imagining such solutions. So when someone says we should have subsidized healthcare or free college or minimum wage uh, or a universal basic income or welfare, whichever, what drops out of awareness is any consideration for the actual individuals who are to be taxed from every direction to pay for these projects, whose goals and freedom are to be curtailed, whose choices are to be preempted, and whose values are to be treated as irrelevant. This is the basic altruist collectivist premise at work, the premise that men are their brother's keepers and that the misfortune of some is a mortgage on others. So I think that's really what's at root here. And that's because people who adopt this premise, they're operating at least implicitly on, on the idea that the lives and resources of individuals belong to the group and they're the groups to dispose of. Now they don't normally frame it that way, I think to themselves, but I think that's really what's underlying it. So when it comes to so-called social issues, individuals are treated as so much usable material for whatever the group or its representatives deem desirable. As Ayn Rand wrote in her essay, Collectivized Ethics, quote, if a man speculates on what, quote, society should do for the poor, he thereby accepts the collectivist premise that men's lives belong to society and that he, as a member of society, has the right to dispose of them, to set their goals or to plan the, quote, distribution of their efforts. Hence the appalling recklessness with which men propose, discuss, and accept, quote, humanitarian projects, which are to be imposed by political means, that is, by force, on an unlimited number of human beings. End quote. I think this issue, this that what Ayn Rand is getting at in those quotes is worth bringing out because on an interpersonal level, I think few of us would presume to suggest to our neighbors or our coworker or the barista at Starbucks, your earnings are mine to dispose of without your consent. My ends justify you using you as the means. And I think we would likely respond indignantly if someone proposed to treat us in that manner. But that's only on an interpersonal level, like on our day-to-day -day interactions with people. But as soon as something is treated as a social issue, rather than an individual issue, people switch over to the collectivist premise. And then individuals, as beings with their own lives, aims, and values, as beings to be respected, simply become invisible. And we blithely vote to commandeer their lives and resources as if they were ours to dispose of. So it's an interesting contrast that in interpersonal, on an interpersonal level, the way we de deal with people and treat them, and the way we deal with issues once we think of them as social. As Ayn Rand put the point, and this is also coming from her essay, uh, Collectivized Ethics, quote, if men have grasped some faint glimmer of respect for individual rights in their private dealings with one another, that glimmer vanishes when they turn to public issues. And what leaps into the political arena <laughs> is a caveman who can't conceive of any reason why the tribe may not bash in the skull of any individual if it so desires." End quote. In this context, <clears throat> I can't resist noting the callous disregard for every individual that the altruist collectivist approach displays particularly in light of the fact that Ayn Rand is regularly criticized as someone whose philosophy is callous, mean, hard-hearted toward the poor or the needy, because she unequivocally rejects the welfare state in all of its programs, as well as the altruism and collectivism that it's based on. Ayn Rand is trying to protect the sanctity of every individual's life, to protect every individual's freedom to live by the guidance of his own judgments by his own values, choices, and ambitions. She's fighting for a boundary around every individual, which no man or majority or institution may properly violate. In other words, a system of individual rights, inalienable rights, so that no one may properly treat any individual's life or property or freedom as material for the ends of others. 
And in that respect, I think Rand is the true humanitarian in this regard, not the altruist social planners and statists of the world who want to commandeer everyone's lives and resources to fit their aims. What's callous in the end are the advocates of the welfare state who treat everyone's rights as irrelevant, who grab their earnings and hand it to whomever they de deem to be in need. I think this is the opposite of a benevolent or just approach. There's nothing benevolent about coercion, no matter how noble you think of your ends. Ayn Rand thinks that we need to start thinking about issues like poverty, healthcare, or education uh, from an individualist perspective. Uh, and to do so, I think the first thing you need to do is abandon the altruism and the collectivism that generates the conventional perspective. You are not, I mean, this is the, the, the takeaway here, and I think this is what, what Rand is pushing, is that you are not your brother's keeper, as the expression goes. And the misfortune of others does not impose a duty on you to relieve it. Now, that said, if you have a good, if you have good self-interested reasons, and by self-interested, I mean ones that actually advance, uh, advance your uh the goals and values that actually support your life. If you have good self-interested reasons to be concerned about some issue that's going on in society, whether it's poverty or somebody's lack of education and so on, and you want to do something about it, your question should be, what can or should I do with my own time and my own resources? And how does this fit in with my other goals and pursuits? How much time is it worth spending? How much, how much of my resources is it worth spending? Is it worth spending time on, given what my old other goals are? So for example, if you or I want to provide assistance to someone in need, we can get together with like-minded people, pool our resources, start a fund or a foundation, or simply speak, speak out, simply advocate that others sit up and take notice of this, like this is an important issue and, and uh, people should be aware of it and so on. You can, you can speak. And in a free society, no one can prevent you from doing this. In other words, we're free to put our, our time and our money where our own values are. And we can work to convince others to share those values. But we have to keep in mind that other people's lives, time, resources, income, are not ours to command or control. So that's a more individual, that's, a, that's an individualist approach to these issues. Likewise, if you really are in a position uh, where you cannot provide for your own needs, and I think there are very few people, I mean, in terms of a percentage that actually are in this position, but nonetheless, it, it is real. If you're really in a position where you can't provide for your own needs, a proper moral approach is to ask others for assistance as a favor, as an act of generosity, not as your right and others' duty because your need is not a moral claim check on other people's lives and resources. <clears throat> so from Rand's perspective, we need to recapture an individualist approach to ethics and to society, one that protects the individual as an individual and not merely as a member of a particular suffering group, a perspective on ethics that treats every individual, not as the means to the ends of others, but as an end in himself. So if you're interested in exploring more on this topic, I would suggest uh, starting with Ayn Rand's, two of Ayn Rand's books, uh, The Virtue of Selfishness and Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal. Uh, the, vir the Virtue of Selfishness deals primarily with the, the moral aspect. Uh, well, it deals with morality, but it addresses the issue more from a moral perspective. Uh, and in the book, Capitalism, The Un Unknown Ideal, she talks about capitalism and the, in the, mean the ways in which Capitalism is in effect, this isn't the subject of the book, but it comes up uh, numerous occasions. I mean, if you're concerned with the issues of poverty and, and people lacking things and you want a society that's wealthy, that's uh, prosperous and so on, it's capitalism that she thinks you need to advocate and understand. So I would go for that book. Um, but you, I would start with the two essays, uh, both of them in virtue of selfishness. Uh, the one is called Collectivized Ethics. Um, and that discusses the issue uh, I've been talking about today. 
and also the ethics of emergencies, which deals with what Ayn Rand thinks that we owe others in terms of help and aid and assistance and so on, and how to think about that whole issue. So I think both of those essays uh, are a good place to start. Uh, now, of course, what we're doing in these webinars is not uh, um, giving any kind of exhaustive treatment. This is, a, this is an opening salvo, so to speak, uh, on a broader issue. So uh, I hope this gets uh, enough material on the table for our discussion. Uh, so that brings me to the end of my own presentation. And uh, in a minute, Ben is going to, Ben Bayer is going to be joining me to moderate uh, the Q&A. Um, but let me say a little bit for those of you who are new to the series, let me say a little bit about how the Q&A is going to work. If you're watching this live on Zoom, uh, take a look at the Zoom controls at the bottom of your screen. If you click on the button that says Q&A, you can post a question there uh, and then we'll add it to the question queue or Ben will add it. Um, you can also post questions uh, on, on the Facebook feed if you're watching on Facebook. Uh, for next week's webinar, uh, just to anticipate, uh, my colleague Keith Lockich will address the question, what drives history? So I hope you can all attend live or at least catch it later on YouTube. Uh, as always, let us know if you have questions you'd like us to take up in future episodes. Um, we're always interested in hearing what kinds of questions, life questions uh, that you have uh, and would like us to address. You can send them to webinars at einrand.org. Uh, before we turn to the Q&A, let me just put up a survey question that I'd like you to all uh, answer. Um, one of the goals of the webinar series is to introduce some of Ayn Rand's ideas to people who are not already familiar with them. Uh, so I know many of you watching the, the video series here are not new, uh, but uh, I think a, a decent number are. So we're curious to know who we're, we're reaching. Uh, so let me, uh, and even if you're a regular attendee, go ahead and fill out the survey. It's good to get a sense of the proportion. So where's my little thing here? Okay, poll. Here we go. Let me launch the poll. Um, so there's only actually one question to the poll, so it's not a, it's not like your tax return. Um, it's just on the on your level of familiarity with Ayn Rand's work. So I'm just going to minimize that. Okay, we're gonna go ahead and start the question period now. Hope we've got some questions and uh, I see Ben is there. So let me stop sharing my screen. Hi, Aaron, can you hear me? I can. Great. Hey, ben. Just uh, also wanted to remind people that uh, we're not just uh, broadcasting on Facebook now, we're also on YouTube and Periscope. And so if you type questions into the into the comments sections of either of those channels. I'll also be looking at those and we'll try to funnel uh, questions Aaron's way. Um, so Aaron, I have a, a few questions of my own that we can maybe use to get things started while, while more questions come in. And the first of them is about the issue of collectivism. So you, at the beginning of your presentation, noted uh, what that view is. And then I think you showed why it is that the what should society do about the poor question presupposed a certain collectivist idea. Can you say more about what's wrong with collectivism, why it's a mistaken assumption to ask questions from? Sure. I mean, let <clears throat> me figure out exactly how I want to address the, the answer. Um, I think primarily the issue is that um, if you look at it from a moral perspective, you look at it from an ethical perspective, uh, and this, what I'm saying here is coming from Ayn Rand's philosophy, so this may not be what you're used to hearing, but from a moral perspective, um, what ethics should teach an individual uh, is how to pursue his own life and goals and aims. In other words, to um, to identify and embrace and achieve the kind of values that's required for his own life, his own survival, his own flourishing. Uh, and to do that, um, what he primarily, what an individual primarily needs is the freedom to act, the freedom to, to think for himself, to identify his goals and his values, and then to act, attain them and keep them. 
And that's primarily what an individual needs. Now, when it comes to a social context, when you're living you know, in a society with a lot of people, and government and so on, uh, the idea is how do you maintain an individual's ability to do that when he's in a society with all these others? Um, and that the collectivist approach, uh, well, and Rand's answer is that you need a system of individual rights, which are really um, they're moral principles that identify those kind of areas where individuals need to be free to function uh, without coercion from the outside. Um, and what a collectivist view, by, con by contrast, what a collectivist view is, is um, it's the group will decide how you act the group will decide which things you can pursue. If you decide on your own, by your own rational judgment, this is what's important for my life, the group can just say, well, yeah, maybe so, but the group has other needs and we think otherwise and we'll tell you how to live. Uh, so it's really a matter of subordinating an individual's mind and his ability to pursue his own life and values um, to other concerns. I mean, to say that other people get to decide is other people do the thinking for you. The government, the state, the society, the majority will do the thinking for you. Um, and, and your role in that respect is obedience. Um, and I think that's not, that's not a good way to live. I think I would also add to that, that, that for Rand at least, there's, there's a, what she would call a metaphysical issue here as well, which is that yeah. she would say that all there is to society is a collection of individuals. Now, it's an organized collection of individuals, but they're still ultimately individuals, and society isn't some kind of superorganism that has a mind of its own that makes decisions, that answers questions about what it should do, etc. And the reason for that is that human beings are individuated from each other, uh, not only physically, uh, because we're separate, we have separate bodies, but, but because we have free will. And we make choices and we have to make choices. And those choices often include going our separate ways from each other when we yeah. disagree. And one of the things that's worth drawing out about that is because it, 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 I think it illuminates for people who don't, an issue that I think people don't often isolate. When people say this is an issue for society, there is no, there is no person, society, there is no entity, society that's making these decisions. So what it really amounts to is um, other, some individuals will decide for other individuals, whether it's a majority or it's a, a ruling clique or whatever it is, but s some other individuals are going to decide for you. They'll, they'll tell you what to do. Um, it's not that society is a sort of an anonymous, um, uninterested, disinterested party. Okay. So, um, Let's go then to uh, another question uh, that's related to the, the other big concept that you brought up, which was altruism. And uh, the question I was going to ask was, what's wrong with altruism? But why don't we deal with that by first taking a look at the question that Steve submitted through Zoom, which says, I understand Rand did not consider benevolence or generosity to be primary virtues. How did she consider these, for example, as minor virtues or perhaps as natural characteristics of rational people in love with life? So what's the difference between you know, altruism, benevolence? Can you sort out these differences and how to think about each of them? Yeah, I mean, I think the primary difference, and I think one of the things that Rand has been saying quite often, is that you need to distinguish between um, benevolence and self-sacrifice. What altruism is what the essence of altruism is self-sacrifice for others. And a sacrifice means uh, surrendering or giving up a greater value for the sake of a lesser one or a non-value. It's, it's, sacrifice means net personal loss. That's what altruism is. Um, and that's why this suffering of saints and martyrs and stuff is so extolled and Jesus on the cross and Mother Teresa spending her life washing people's feet. It's about it's about loss, it's about giving up. Um, and benevolence and generosity are not like that at all. Or at least they should. I mean, I don't think benevolence is that way at all. Um, I don't think of benevolence as a virtue, but I think of it as a natural um, outgrowth 
of a healthy attitude toward oneself and toward ones uh, and toward other people. I think it's an outgrowth of, uh, um, I think, self-esteem in some respect and self-respect. Uh, and I think there's a way in which uh, one has a view of other people where you give where you give them sort of the benefit of the doubt and you treat them with a generalized kind of respect um, that you would expect for yourself. And I think that, that kind of a benevolence flows naturally out of that. Um, generosity is really um, giving some someone more uh, than they would have reason to expect from you. So for and this can be, um, I think, sacrificial. I don't know if you'd quite call it generosity if it's sacrificial, but uh, or non-sacrificial. So for example, I'm a teacher. I teach here at the Feynman Institute. Uh, and so sometimes I have office hours and I'll spend more time, suppose we've got a half hour block and sometimes I'll spend an hour with somebody an ex extra time that they wouldn't normally think that, you know, I got this coming to me. It's like, no, the, the professor's spending more time with me and stuff. And I think this is, I mean, that's generous in, in, the, in, in this regard because they don't, they don't have it coming to them. I'm giving it to them. Um, on the other hand, it's self-interested as well. I mean, I, I, I think the conversation's going well and the student is, uh, you know, trying to grapple with the material. It's actually in my interest as a teacher to spend a bit more time, but I don't have to. And that's the issue. It's not an obligation. It's just, um, so I think generosity, kindness, benevolence need to be, uh, are good things and they're appropriate in certain contexts and in often case meant contexts, but they have to be severed from a morality that tells you to sacrifice yourself for others and place others' interests above your own. Cause I think that's really self-destructive. Let me, let me just ask one follow-up then about that. Cause this was getting to my original, the question I was thinking about, well, what is wrong with, with doing that? What is wrong with uh, a morality that demands self-sacrifice? Well, Isn't that what we've all been taught morality is? Well, you could say what's right about it, <laughs> but it's, but uh, no, but to address the question directly, what's wrong with it? Um, when you say something's wrong, you're, you're talking about, you're evaluating something by a moral standard. Um, and if your moral standard is uh, self-sacrifice, well, nothing's wrong with it. If your moral sac if your moral standard, as Ayn Rand would argue, uh, is, your, is life, and the requirements and needs of your own life, the, you know, the things that you need to sustain yourself to, uh, and to live, um, then it's telling you to find out what those things are and then give them away. You know, so it's, it's pushing in the opposite direction of what your life and happiness and, and, and uh, uh, flourishing requires. So it's, it's anti-life from that perspective. And as a result, uh, immoral, anti-morality. I mean, if you have a morality of life, the anti-life is the anti-moral. Um, and so that's the ultimate reason. And because you should care about your life. <laughs> okay. And Robert in Zoom asks the following question. What would, you, what would your reaction be if someone tells you that helping the poor is very high on his hierarchy of values? And one kind of sub-question that I could add to that would be, you just said that that we should take life as the standard of moral value. Uh, why doesn't that mean uh, holding the life of the poor as a uh, worthy object of morality? Okay, so we have two different questions there. Uh, I think they're related. Well, sure. So the first question was, um, what about somebody who uh, who's, has helping the poor kind of high up on their value priority list? Um, a lot of these what about this kind of types of questions well i don't know what about them i mean so it's it's uh what do i think of that uh i mean i i would ask the person um like why why is this so high on your value on, on your value hierarchy why is it so important to you um i don't think there's one answer to this well here's what i think it's more why why is this such a concern um and there may be legitimate reasons that they have for these kinds of things. So, and are they, is it that they've become super successful and they have a lot of money and maybe they came from a really poor background, for example, and you know, they know what it's like to grow up like that. And so for them, it has a really personalized feel that this is something I, I would like to help other people to get out of. Uh, so they didn't have to struggle as much as I did. And it, it, are you focused on your own community or are you just tossing money out to strangers? And so that 
I, I couldn't answer the question um, without asking the person more questions. Um, I, 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 could you also like, what poor is he helping? Is it the so-called deserving poor? I mean, in the sense that like, these are people that are falling on hard times or just you know, have some difficulties in their lives or they just, because they fall below an income level, you have a concern for them. I don't think that's legitimate um, because it's not, it's not really value focused. Um, so that's what I'd say about the first part of the question. And then the, your addition was, uh, what was it again? Sorry. Well, you said that morality had to have life as its standard. So what if someone said, yeah, morality is about life. And so my top moral value is going to be saving the lives of the poor. Yeah, I think what, uh, so I, I don't think that's uh, the right perspective that it's, it's, a, it's when we say that my life is the standard of value, it's that which is required for an individual, that which is required for the survival, the life of a rational being uh, you know, throughout the course of his life. Uh, and so that's an abstract standard, but that's an abstract standard that each individual living human being needs to apply to the pursuit of his own life. It would subordinate the goal of ethics. Uh, it would, I didn't mean subordinate, it would undermine the goal of ethics, which is for an individual to live and to flourish. If what he did was work for uh, uh, the, I don't know, the good of humanity as a whole, the life of lives of everyone as a whole, it would completely reorient the individual's life away from what his own life requires. Um, so I think that would in effect gut uh, the whole purpose of having a morality uh, of life. I mean, this doesn't mean you shouldn't be, have any concern or there's anything wrong with having concern for other human beings. Obviously not. Um, it's, it's about the whole direction and orientation of a life and about your sense of what you're morally obligated to do versus what kinds of things you're choosing to pursue because you know they're good and they're, they're, they support you. Well, here's a question that follows up on a thread that just came up in your last answer. Uh, Elizabeth in Zoom asks, is it rational to feel guilty when you see the suffering of others, even if you are not the cause of that suffering? Is it rational? That was her question. No, but I think it's understandable. Um, so if you ask, is it rational? Is it, does, it, does it properly make sense in reason for you to experience guilt, to feel guilt, or to be guilty? Uh, for things over which you have no responsibility. Uh, no, it's not. That's not to say that it's, I don't think it's weird or that it's uh, unnatural. I think partly because, well, let me step back from that, from what I was saying. Let me, okay, so let me, let me qualify this. Um, to feel sympathy, I think that's understandable. That, like, I, I get why people feel that. I mean, that's not, crazy. I mean, you're a human being and I don't like to see other human beings suffer. I guess it depends on which human being, but I mean, in general, right. Um, <clears throat> but guilt, no, I think, no, that's not, you shouldn't feel that at all. I mean, if you're not responsible for it, guilt, it, that's a moral failure is not something you should feel. I think what happens is because the way in which altruism, uh, you know, the, the service to others and that you have to live for others and so on, the way that is infected, the way uh, or if you put more neutrally influenced the way we think about our lives and our relations with other people, I think you would feel, yeah, well, why am I not doing something? I mean, here's somebody suffering or somebody's homeless or they're whatever it is. And it's like, and you just sort of drive past and it's like, and then you feel guilty because like, well, what I should have done something I should have stopped or what if, you know, and because, uh, and again, it's not about, uh, Ayn Rand has this great quote, uh, which I don't have in front of me, but it's like, uh, it's not, the issue is not whether you give a dime to a beggar. It's whether you have to buy your life dime by dime by dime as you go through your life as if, because you don't have any moral right to live for your own sake. You only have a right to live if you keep, you know, giving and giving and giving. And so it's that approach that Rand is trying to move you away from. I don't think you should feel guilty for things you're not responsible for, but I get why people do experience that. It's because of altruism and we need to get rid of that. And that probably relates to the, some of the previous questions that came in about people who regard helping the poor as one of their top values. Well, there's a question then you can ask them, well, why do you regard it as such a high value? Uh, is, it, is it because there's really some legitimate background in your life that connects you to them? Did you start out poor yourself? There's a certain category of struggling people you want to see 
prosper just like you? Or is it that you've been raised in a cultural tradition that regards altruism as sacrosanct and therefore, and you're implicitly uh, relying on those assumptions and your emotions are informed by that? Yeah, and I think part of it is that, I mean, I mean, so how many, how many of you people out there don't want to feel like you're a good person? Right? I mean, we all want to feel like we're good people. We all want to think of ourselves as good, as moral. I think, that's, I think it's really important for self-esteem. And so often what happens is if you think about, uh, if, you think, if what you think of the moral is, which is it's helping others, it's helping the poor, the needy, whoever is, is you know, in some sort of distress, and that's what the essence of the moral is. Yeah, I mean, you should put the moral very high, so to speak, uh, in terms of what you think is important in life. Uh, but I, what Rand is pushing you to think is to reorient how you think about the nature of morality, because then the whole feedback mechanism of, I think this is what's good, let's say it's altruism and so on, uh, and so helping the poor is really important to me. Well, that makes sense, right? If that's your view of what the good is. And then you think of yourself as a good person. Hey, I went to the soup kitchen. I gave money to charity, whatever it is. And you do get some sort of positive feedback. Like I'm doing what I think is right and what is good. Um, but if, if what you're doing is you're orienting yourself away from the, uh, your own life and happiness and what's, what's really needed to sustain it and enrich it, um, then your moral, your moral code is setting your, your, your actions in reverse of what you need uh, and setting your emotional mechanism so that you value things that are actually taking you away from what you need. Um, and I think that's a, kind of what Ben was getting at. So we also got a, a, a number of different questions, uh, especially in Zoom, which were in effect, what about kinds of questions that you were worried about, but they all amounted to what about, what about this group of the poor? What about that group of the poor? Donald says, how would you address the needs of those who are mentally ill and are consequently homeless? Mark wonders about how do we as a society identify and care for children whose parents are abusive, neglectful, absent, or impoverished, especially when private charity and individual volition are not sufficient. Do you want to say any more, uh, speak to, any speak to the questions about these kinds of specific cases? Do you have any thoughts on these? Yeah, uh, on some of them I do, on some of them I don't. I mean, the, I think the general thing is, what about such and such a group? Um, like, what should we as a society do? I don't think we as a society. So uh, if you think about what should the government do for the poor, the needy, or the homeless, or whatever it is, the government should protect their rights just as they protect everyone else's rights. The government should protect the rights of the, the needy just as much as they protect the rights of the rich. And that's what they have. That's what the government owes them, so to speak. Um, protection of rights. Uh, what do you owe them? Uh, well, the same thing to start with, the same thing you owe every other individual. Rationality and hands off. Um, but if it comes to what you should do for them, uh, that depends on your own values. Um, but there is a role for charity. I mean, there is a role for private assistance and so on. And if you, if, the, you, if you think of an issue that's particularly important to you and you have good reasons to think it's, it's, this is something you should spend some of your time on, then do it. Um, but the society as a whole, they're not questions for society as a whole to answer. But let me address a couple things. Um, one, uh, Parents who are abusive, I mean, that's an issue for law. Uh, I mean, because, I mean, it's illegal. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason why, I mean, if someone's, uh, you know, beating their child or it's an abusive thing, you need, you need legal structures to, um, to address that issue. And, uh, and what was the thing about homelessness? And the mentally homelessness Ill. And Ill. Mentally Ill. And yeah, no, I think that's, that's tricky. I don't really, I haven't thought a lot about that, um, but part of it is, um, I, I, I mean, again, I don't have specific things for these people, but it's, uh, I could, this is again, a role for charity. Um, and the extent to which, so there are two different aspects, like how, what can you do to help them? Well, that's an issue for charity if you're interested. Um, if it's, uh, homelessness camp, homeless people camping out on private property, well then, then the police need to remove them from your private property. It's in defense of, uh, other people's rights. Um, but I don't have a particular here's what you do. But I mean, the broader, the broad answer is the, the government shouldn't do anything for these people unless they're violating someone's rights. 
um, otherwise, basically what you do is then you just go back to the altruist collectivist premise and say, look, if somebody's suffering or in need in some way, we can just reach in and grab other people's stuff without their consent, violate their rights, and then do something about it to assuage our, uh, our conscience. conscience. There's a question related to all of this, this whole category of questions that just came in, though it's more of a rhetorical question than a, than a, okay. um, a, a than one that it wants the answer to, but maybe you can comment on it. How can, this is from Harry Zoom, how can there be a majority voting to tax themselves to provide money for the poor if people don't care to contribute to charity? As he brings up in connection to the what if charity is not sufficient kind of question. Yeah, okay, so, so what Harry's raising is people say uh, private charity isn't sufficient, and yet they keep voting for themselves, I mean, uh, the kind of the welfare status types, they keep voting for themselves to pay more and more and more for these kinds of programs. So clearly they're, 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 willing to, they're willing to give it up. And I think the issue there is these are people who often, I won't say generally about everybody because I don't know, um, it's often the case that they're not motivated to do anything as individuals, um, but they're only okay with it is if everybody is roped in with the same obligation. Uh, and then they're okay if somebody grabs some of their stuff uh, to give to whatever programs the, the government thinks that uh, it should be doing. As long as everybody else is roped into the same obligation, the same noose around them, so to speak, uh, then, that, then we're okay. But if you're gonna ask me as an individual, it's, because you always ask these, you these quite wealthy uh, kind of liberals and so on, they, they add clamoring for this and this, it's like, well, what do you do? Why don't you start with your own millions uh, and do something and, you know, but the issue isn't hypocrisy. Um, though that comes up. But yeah, I think there's definitely enough. I mean, charity, I mean, Americans I, have always been, historically been uh, enormously charitable. Um, and if you think about getting rid of uh, these programs that are such an enormous drain, these welfare state programs that are such an enormous, I think, catastrophic drain on people's incomes, and uh, that money could be invested into production, into new projects, into new businesses, into new jobs, I mean, there would be it'd be enormously more wealthy if you can get rid of all these uh, soul and income sucking programs. Um, people would be much more wealthy and much more wealthy, much more free, much more benevolent as a result, and I think much more likely to to give. I mean, when I think about, I mean, yeah, if I had more money, there are things that I would be interested in supporting. <laughs> but it's like you know, but people have to get. To, I think it's it's helpful that when people. Wealth is amazing. And this is why it drives me nuts when people are anti-wealth and how come you, there shouldn't be billionaires and all this nonsense. Wealth is enormous, an enormous good and you can't have too much of it. Uh, much of, uh, I mean, the, the wealth of the wealthy doesn't sit in their mattress. It's in a bank, it's in investment vehicles and so on. It's being used to fuel uh, production, new, new products, new businesses. There's, it's just without wealth, and, and the kind of system like capitalism that creates and unleashes the, the creators uh, of wealth. I mean, if you're concerned with the poor, you should advocate capitalism. That's, I guess that's the, that's the short point. Related to the point you brought up about the charitable giving, the, vo the voluntary charitable giving of Americans, Steve in Zoom uh, asks, a question related to that. He says, is it true that in the 19th century in the US and other Western countries, most charity was delivered by private voluntary organizations? Now, I believe most support for the poor is through government. Why did this happen? A related question is what role does insurance play in these issues, for instance, surviving a loss? Yeah, a couple, on that too. <clears throat> yeah a couple of things. Um, uh, I'm not a historian on this issue, um, but my guess is that the answer is yes, when it comes to the question about the 19th century, um, because the major programs uh, that uh, the US government uh, has instituted uh, are, what is it? It's Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. I mean, these are the, ma the, the three major things, and those didn't come about till later. Um, when it comes to uh, insurance, yeah, I mean, insurance is important. I mean, not just for, you know, health issues or if you break your leg or whatever. Um, I mean, people used to have um, uh, in poverty insurance. 
I've heard this, I, I, I haven't studied this, but I read the, even poverty insurance. In other words, uh, you lose your job or something and you can't work. And it's, I mean, insurance is, basically insurance is long, is thinking about your life long range. So it's putting a small amount away on a regular basis in order to pay for a service that will help you when you find yourself in some catastrophic situation or some really debilitating situation. Um, I think what can happen is that when the government takes over some of these issues, as it does in all sorts of areas in life, is the more government, the more we're coerced to provide for services, uh, welfare programs, supporting the poor and on and so on, the less likely people are to give privately. Uh, and so you might find a diminution of private charity as a result of that, but I, I'm not sure if that's actually what is going on. Uh, but I, but I would know the, the more money that's taken from me, and you can't really calculate it, you know. But the more money that's taken from me, the less I have. The more I have, the more I have the means. The less I have, the less I have the means. So, and again, I, I don't. So we're talking a lot about charity and assistance, and I think a lot of this has to do with the whole altruism in the culture. Why are we spending so long on? Charity, what about giving this person? What about giving this person? Partly it's, I think that's a bit weird. I mean, I don't mean it's weird of the questioners. It's normal of the questioners, but it's weird culturally. Um, I don't, I don't, I mean, charity is a side issue. Um, it's, it's not a major concern. And I don't think you should think of a political system and have it as, this is my yardstick. If it doesn't uh, solve the problem of the poor or it doesn't help the handicapped uh, mentally ill on the street that someone's a bad system or so, I don't think that should be the yardstick or the measure though the more that but capitalism is, is the system of freedom and wealth and opportunity uh, and that's the only thing that gives people who really can't help themselves uh, the, a fighting chance. Yeah on the issue of Private charity, and you, you talked about poverty insurance. I, I happen to know a little something about this. The, this, especially about the latter, uh, so-called mutual aid societies yeah. were a really big deal in the 19th century, late 19th century and early 20th. And, and uh, you see many of the, the, you see the residue of these organizations, many of them morphed into fraternal organizations which are now just kind of, uh, you know, recreational things. But uh, originally they were often there so that working people could sign up by putting a certain small amount of money into the, this kind of insurance, you know, every month or year, they would then be able to uh, cash into the community chest, as it were, uh, in case they lost their job. Uh, and if you want to know more about this, uh, your own book and, Don Watkins wrote a book called Free Market Revolution, How Ayn Rand's Ideas Can End Big Government. And there's a, there's a whole discussion of this uh, about mutual aid societies in there. I just put a link uh, to it in the chat for those who are on Zoom and I'm putting it into the comments sections and various uh, channels as well. But if you search uh, mutual aid societies, uh, I think page 181, there's a there's a discussion of this. I know about this in particular because where I used to live in New Orleans, all of the Mardi Gras crews, um, many of them at least, uh, started out as mutual aid societies well before there was anything like uh, the welfare state. Um, yeah, and I think one of the thing too is um, the, the, the altruism and collectivism that has generated the, the demand for the welfare state. Um, once you live in a welfare state, I mean, part of the tragedy of this is, um, it's like, well, why aren't you saving privately? It's like, well, so much of your money is already commandeered into this that you start to then come to expect and to rely on the government to provide you for these things. Because after all, I mean, you take social security. I mean, there's, they're not putting the money in a trust fund. They use the money immediately. Everything coming out of your paycheck, they use the money immediately. And you just have to hope some other poor sucker gets uh, robbed uh, so that you have something to live on. Uh, when you retire and it's, it stops, it prevents people or makes it harder for people to invest privately. Um, if, if you, if you simply didn't have any system like that at all, I mean, the very first thing any person with any kind of sense would do is the very, the very first time you get a job, whether you're 10 or you're 15 or whatever it is, you start putting things away. You start investing, you start planning for your future because there isn't this idea that there's this, 
super uh, safety net out there that's just going to take care of me. And so I don't really have to worry too much about it. I don't have to plan that much uh, unless I want to do a lot of traveling and be wealthy in my retirement. It's like the, the state will take care of me. And if you don't have that as, a, as an operating assumption, uh, you, you have to take control of your life. And it's, it's, it's challenging, um, but, it's, but it's rewarding as well. And it's, it's you know, for anybody who's, I think, uh, wants their own freedom to make their own decisions, I think it's, it's the, the right way to go. So there's been a number of uh, questions. Well, we've, we've talked a fair bit about altruism so far and distinguished altruism from uh, generosity and from benevolence. And you've said something about why you and Rand both reject altruism. There's a question that Kate asked on Zoom about, well, why is it that people still believe in altruism? And she asked in, in particular, how much is religion responsible for promoting altruism and self-sacrifice? I think, well, to start with the, the latter, uh, I, didn't, I think religion uh, is, I would say, the primary cause for the widespread uh, acceptance uh, or at least lip service toward uh, altruism. Um, so that's part two of the question. I mean, the first part is how come people still accept it? Well, I'd say two reasons. One, they associate, I think improperly, but they associate, they've been taught to associate Altruism in terms of living for others, self-sacrificing for others, placing the needs of others above yourself. They associate that with kindness, benevolence, uh, you know, goodwill. And so they're sold kind of a package of some things that are positive and good, some things that are destructive. And they're told to think of these in the same way. So they think of themselves as when they're benevolent or generous in some way. Uh, or someone does them a kindness, they think of this as altruism and they don't properly identify, uh, they, don't, they don't make the separation between what's self-sacrificial versus what's uh, in some other way other regarding. Um, and the other, the other reason why is it's what, what's the other option? So they, it's very hard to think outside of a conventional perspective, particularly in morality. It's a difficult issue and of course uh, is one of my colleagues has said, well, you know, once you start thinking outside of conventional morality, it's as if you're thinking outside morality. And, you know, it's, it's as if you're abandoning morality uh, when you're challenging conventional perspective on morality. But it's, it's important to realize that morality is a broader concept than just altruism. Altruism is just one form of morality. And really, you have to go back, I think, uh, to ancient Greece. Uh, the, and it's not just ancient Greece, it, it's more important, it's pre-Christian. So I think that, that's, the, that's the major thing. I mean, the religion took over the field of ethics uh, when Christianity really came to the fore culturally. Um, when it comes to ancient Greek uh, ethics, I mean, the primary focus is, and, and I think was always, what is the best life for an individual? Uh, in best, in best meaning the most, uh, the, rich, the, the richest, the best, I don't mean money rich, but it's, What's the best, most enviable life for a human being and how to live it and what virtues to inculcate if that's what you're, the kind of person you're going to be and that's the kind of life you're going to live. It was very focused on, uh, on, on the individual um, and very focused on this world. Uh, and I think the takeover of Christianity was really the idea that it's um, that your primary focus should be on the other world and your primary obligation is to serve some other being whether it's God or your neighbors or whatever. Um, and that has been secularized even after the, the, you know, religion has sort of, it's not the dominant cultural force anymore, whether it's the church and the state or one, and it's not the dominant force anymore, but when secular philosophers or philosophers, not, not necessarily secular philosophers, but philosophers who are religious, but want to move away from this, the kind of the faith and the dogma sort of approach to ethics and think about it in more rational terms. Um, they basically adopted the same kind of altruism, but then got God out of the picture. So now instead of serving, uh, serving God, uh, you're serving society. I mean, socialism, Nazism, any kind of collectivism, all of it in explicitly, in explicit terms, it's all about serving the community, the individuals, nothing, it serves the group. Um, it's all about sacrifice for others. The whole moral perspective is like that. 
Um, I mean, just take John Stuart Mill. I mean, uh, utilitarianism, one of the major ethical theories today among philosophers and normal people, uh, is that, you know, you serve the greatest happiness. It, it, the aim is the greatest happiness for the greatest number, as they sometimes put it. So the idea is you're supposed to work for the good of the whole and treat your own life and your own values as just, just one interchangeable unit uh, of, of good within the whole wider perspective. So what it, may, what it basically amounts to is it's, it's altruism. It's another version of altruism is all it is. But it's only Ayn Rand really that's telling you that, that the purpose of ethics is to give you the kind of guidance that you need to pursue your own life and your own fulfillment, your own flourishing. It's not about others. Others, I mean, it has to give you guidance on how to deal with others or relate to others, but it's centrally focused on, on an individual's own life. And she's unique in that, I think, um, I mean, historically. So on the issue of the religious origins of altruism, Al in the chat in Zoom mentions that the phrase, your brother's keeper, is actually something that comes from the Bible uh, right after Cain kills Abel. Um, and he wonders where this idea, how this idea had such influence in, in morality. But I, I guess part of what you're saying is it's not even just that there happen to be particular altruistic ideas in the content of the religious codes that have been promulgated. You're also saying that there's something about the very idea of getting your morality from religion that is conducive to altruism. So you mentioned that it, you know, religious morality is all about uh, sub submitting yourself to a higher power, to a, a higher other power. And that's already asking for you to sacrifice. And then if the culture changes a little bit and the, the higher other power is no longer God, but society or the, the needy or the environment, then it's a, a kind of just yeah, a variation on the same theme. Yeah, because it's all about subordination. It's about subordinating your own judgment in the end uh, and your own goals and your own choices and your own values to something else, whether it's God, the community, the race, the nation, the proletariat, whatever it is. It's, it's not telling you that your life is your own and the good is to live it. So the issue about the expression, um, man is his brother's keeper. I looked that up once because somebody said, oh, that's not what the expression really means. And I was out of curiosity, I looked up at the Bible. And yeah, I don't think that's what it means. In I don't think it means altruism at all. Not 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 in the Bible itself, but that expression that uh, has come to mean, and in theologians and religious circles and so on, that has come to be uh, an expression that they use to capture an appropriate, in their view, appropriate uh, altruistic approach. Because I think as it comes up in the Bible, um, God, uh, so Cain kills his brother. I guess it's Cain killed Abel, right? Not the other way around. Uh, Cain kills Abel, and uh, God is like, where's your brother, Cain? Where's your brother? And he's like, I'm not my brother's keeper. It's kind of like, I ain't his mother. So it's, it's more, comes up something more like that. But I mean, the expression and the fact that it's in the Bible, it's, it's probably this is interpretation over time. And the, they like that expression, man, this is a brother's keeper, because it seems to capture, it's, you know, you have to love thy neighbor as thyself. And, you know, I mean, the one, the one thing that's, it's, I mean, for what it's worth, uh, to not say everything horrible about Christianity. Uh, it's, you know, but one way of looking at it is um, there is an egoistic element to it in the sense that you're supposed to sacrifice and obey now, but there's a huge payoff in the end, right? You get an infinity or eternity of bliss with the creator and happiness in you, this great world you're supposed to go to. So you can think of that as the that egoistic if you think your aim is to get to the jackpot and you have to you know, subordinate yourself a bit now, uh, but there is no other world, so all you do is subordinate. So it's fundamentally. Problem. And you have to subordinate your mind to believe <clears throat> that that's true. Yeah. Uh, since there's no evidence for it. I think that most of the rest of the questions that we have gotten uh, are going to take too long to dig into, given that we only have two minutes left. And so maybe, maybe now is a good time to wrap up, Aaron. Sure. So uh, let's see here, let me. Let me go back. Yeah, so uh, basically I just want to uh, remind you, let's see, I'm trying to find something here. Um, I just want to remind you that uh, Keith, uh, Keith Lockich is gonna be doing uh, next week's webinar 
uh, and it's on this topic. I guess the question is, what drives history? Uh, so hope you can join us for that. Uh, and as always, I'll remind you, send us in uh, the questions you have to uh, webinars at ironman.org. Uh, and maybe that will wind up being the topic of a future um, video. So thank you very much. And Ben, thanks for coming in and moderating. Welcome. Okay, well, thank you to everyone who showed up and uh, threw us some questions. Uh, I'm glad you're here and uh, hope we keep going. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye.